The podcast will begin after this message. Our Army Skills started our first aid business, but we found we are lacking the skills to grow it. Grow with Google's program in Denmark gave us a digital mindset. In less than a year, we went from teaching 360 people first aid to 3,200. Now we employ 34 more Army staff. We are Mark and Anders of First Aid in Denmark. Two of the 725,000 Europeans so far who found a job or grown their business with Google's help. By 2020, we will support 1 million more. Grow with Google. To find out more, search New Skills, New Opportunities. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. Brussels has been pretty quiet this week. All eyes have instead been on the German front and Angela Merkel's partial retirement. That has impacts for Europe. She's now got more time to devote to EU-level challenges and reforms, but less political capital to spend on them. One year on from Emmanuel Macron's EU vision speech at the Sorbonne, he's in a similar position, and that doesn't bode well for Europe's political centre or EU reform. Merkel will be lucky to survive until 2021, as she says she wants to. From January, her enemies in her government have a new base camp from which to attack her job as Chancellor. The Social Democrats could pull the plug at any moment. But the big takeaway from Merkel's slow exit is that it will reinforce fragmentation in European politics. If you look across Europe's party landscape, A different European party runs each of the five biggest EU countries. The biggest European party, the EPP, runs only one of the 12 biggest countries, Germany. The next biggest is Hungary. The socialists are polling below 20%. They've lost about a quarter of their vote share in most countries. And in Eastern Europe, election turnout was down to 28% in 2014. And we don't have any solid proof that that's going to change in 2019. Coming up in the podcast, our interview guest this week is the left-wing Swedish MEP Malin Bjork, one of the key players in Brussels on the EU's controversial and sometimes unenforced refugee policies. Let's hear that interview now. We're really pleased to have you on. You're the first member of your group to join us on EU Confidential. It's about time. Thank you for taking me here. Yeah, Absolutely. So we were listening to each other in Strasbourg, where you were doing a press conference just before Viktor Orban came in to defend himself in that really divisive vote. And I thought it was a real pity that there weren't more people there to listen to what you had to say. Maybe tell us a little bit more about what your current priorities are in the parliament. Well, you know, I'm from a left party in Sweden. We're a feminist party. We're a green party, a red-green party. So for us, you know, it's really important to be active on those issues. And I think people like Orban make me completely all my political instincts go crazy because he's so much about everything that I think we have to act against. His nationalism, his racism, his misogyny also, because one doesn't speak about that so often, he's homophobic, uh, etc. And I think, you know, I've chosen to work a lot on refugee rights because it's a matter of life and death for people trying to seek safety and a life free from violence and conflict here in Europe. But it's also a matter of future for Europe. What kind of continent are we going to be? Are we going to be an open continent, remain an open continent, I would even want to say, that you know solves the issue of how we are going to receive people and do that in the best way, but upholding international law, etc. And I think how we manage that issue will be defining about what continent we are. So I had to take that debate. 
with Orban for so many reasons, because he threatens everything I think Europe should be about. And you're not just talking in the parliament when you describe these values. I think a few years back, you even helped someone who was being deported from Sweden. You refused to buckle up in the airplane and that ensured that that person was deboarded and ended up not having to go where the government was trying to, to send them in the end. No, it was this uh, man. He is father of two little kids. His little child was three months old in Mexico Z in the airport. And we don't put families apart That's not who we are. We should keep families together and we should give safety for people fleeing conflict and violence. And it was wrong to try to send him away from Sweden. He got the permit. He's staying there. He's safe with his family, with his kids, where he should be. So I'm very proud that I did that at that moment. But I also see today that now there are people that say, oh, that's terrible if people stand up. We have to punish that kind of behavior. We can see it where people saving lives in the Mediterranean are being prosecuted for that. We have seen people in France being prosecuted for assisting refugees in different ways. And we see calls for criminalizing this kind of human solidarity. I think it's a very dangerous path. Now they want to criminalize solidarity with the refugees. Whose solidarity do they want to criminalize the next time? I think it's a very dangerous path. So I can see that what I did a few years back... Today, maybe somebody would have, you know, hit me harder to say, you know, like, put her behind bars, you know, for being just a human being. And sometimes we overthink these sorts of things, where I know that there's obviously big political debates at stake. And I do understand people's desire to feel like there's a system where there is some kind of order, that things aren't just a free-for-all. But I give a personal example, because this issue is close to my heart as well. So I got to know an asylum seeker from Syria. He uses the name Mike here in Belgium. And he had a lot of difficulties finding accommodation, being able to integrate into society because it wasn't an easy set of steps to take once he had arrived in Belgium from Syria. And we came to learn that he was separated from his family and that he'd never met his baby son because his wife gave birth after he was making the journey. There were situations like capsized boats and things like that. And so I got together with a group of our friends and what he loved to do was cook more than anything else. He wasn't allowed to cook in the former army facility where he was living when he arrived in Belgium. And so we said, well, why don't you cook for us? And we'll raise money for you. We'll pay for you to cook for us. And that will help reunite you with your wife and your child. And that was an easy thing to do. So it didn't take any work at all. And if every group of friends in Europe did that for somebody, everybody would have their families reunited. So that's the hope I want to give in telling that story. But it was also a gray area because we don't know exactly how his wife and child were able to get out of Syria. What we do know is that families should be together. Yes. We know that we have to keep children safe. We know that people are fleeing conflict and war and very, very difficult life circumstances. And I think instead of looking at, you know, what's wrong with that, we have to look at how can we build our future stronger and together and integrate and receive people that come here. That is what Europe has been historically. It's not a, never been a closed continent. So to walk down that route is not even an option. And of course, so many of our families and past generations were leaving Europe because it was a place people had to emigrate from. A lot so of it, Swedes. So it's a two-way uh, of bit of traffic. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Well, my, my family actually, my mother's side, they're Swedish-speaking Finns. So they left about 100 years ago. And so I always have that in my mind, that you need to know where you came from and that things can move in different directions. Now, maybe a bit more of your specific work in the parliament. You're a rapporteur for the resettlement policy of refugees, which is one element of that controversial policy that the commission 
was pushing, sometimes more successfully than not, with the national government. Some of them were very, very resistant. But maybe could you explain a little bit about what that term means for people who aren't familiar with it, and what's your view of how that policy is being implemented now? Well, resettlement is a safe and legal pathway to Europe or to any other country that it's involved in resettlement, like Canada, for example. And my country, Sweden, has been involved in resettlement together with UNHCR, who is the referring body who identifies the most vulnerable refugees in different situations around the globe that needs to be resettled, that is to have a safe and legal pathway to a country where they can have a residence permit and a life. So for the moment, there are national programs for that. But what we wanted to do, and I was very happy to be the rapporteur and to be still the rapporteur for that, for that legislative file, is to create an EU framework for that and to encourage more member states to participate and to resettle more people. I think to have safe and legal pathways... Resettlement is one way. It should never be the only one, but it should be one way. So we have a very good position from the parliament. We have negotiated very hard with the council on this. And we had an agreement under the Bulgarian presidency, which has now been blocked by the council. So that's the situation we are in. Where It's not the only file in this area that has been blocked by the council in this way. I and still, is it a majority of the countries or it's a specific minority that's trying to hold it up? Actually, I think in my case, you know, that people try to, I think there is a reluctance from certain member states to even resettle one single person. And then still you let them dictate how it's going to happen. But they're not going to resettle anywhere. So, you know, I think we should have the best possible framework and then, you know, encourage more and more member states to participate and to resettle more and more people. I would be very proud if one first safe and legal pathway would be open at the EU level. Then I would like to see others like humanitarian visas, like a very well-functioning family reunification scheme, etc. But this is one. Now, one of the other uh, areas that you said you were really passionate about was pursuing feminist policies yeah. and I suppose within that, we, you would also like to see more women in significant roles within yeah. all of the EU's institutions. Yeah. What's your assessment of how we're going on that front? We saw the launch in recent days of a new blog to try and break the culture of silence around mm -hmm. some of the harassment issues inside this building, the European yeah. Parliament in Brussels. And we've also got a situation where we've never had a female president of something like the European Commission. So what's your view of how that's going to unfold over the 2019 election season? Well, I hope, and I'm certainly do my most to make it an issue that you cannot shy away from as a political party or somebody that actually running for these elections. What has your party done to make sure that when we come back here, why shouldn't there be 50-50? Why shouldn't there be parity in the European Parliament? And why couldn't we have an electoral law that insists on parity. So I think that's first a missed opportunity that we haven't put in place. And secondly, in my group, the left group in this parliament, we have 50-50. We actually have more women than men. It's the first time in history in the European Parliament that that happens. And I didn't know that until I ended up there. And of course, I can feel that in terms of the culture that develops. In terms of, we don't have to be two or three that go up and, you know, demand that we have a very safe and, let's say, respectful political culture in our group. Because there are half of us, we, you know, so it becomes evident. So I think we need more women in politics for this to happen. Then I completely support the launch of this Me Too site and, you know, for the European Parliament to put in institutional mechanisms to combat sexual harassment. Because we're not even following up on the resolution that we voted upon a year ago. And I'm just sorry to say, the leadership of this House is blocking a proper follow-up to that resolution. I'm very upset about that. But, and then I also think that the European Commission will be in 2019. I would assume it's going to be a woman president for the European Commission. 
Well, we don't have many candidates yet, so yeah, we're well, going to have to push it a little bit harder. There are very, very many competent women, so just go out, you know, I just expect the member states to go out and look for them. Yeah. Well, actually, that makes me think your group has been a little bit hesitant on this idea of a system called the Spitzen candidate system for commission president. Do you have any news on whether there will be a candidate from the left and the green left for commission president, or will you have another approach to say what your vision for the commission is next year? The position of my party, the Swedish left party, is that we are not very interested in this Spitzen candidate. And I think the procedure of having a good commission president, it's a question of negotiation and we can have a quite transparent process that would be very good but that it is a process of negotiating between member states and then coming back to the parliament of mm. course for our approval. So no I'm not so interested but I want a woman on that post this time. Understood, noted and now speaking of Sweden your party didn't do too badly in the election but you were all part of a government that seems like it's not going to be there anymore. So how are you feeling about that? We had situation where Sweden was pursuing a specifically feminist foreign policy, which was quite an innovation, even though it was Margaret Wallström from a different left-wing party. But how are you feeling now that things are going to be changing in Sweden? Let's say it like this. The outgoing prime minister should have been asked to form a government. They're the biggest party. Whatever the situation is, for me, he should have been asked to try to form a government over, you know, over integrating centre-right-wing parties or whatever his choice would. But the situation for me, the most important thing is that in Sweden, we have kept what they in French call the cordon sanitaire. So until now, unlike some of our neighbouring countries in the Nordic region, the extreme right have not been invited to support or have an influence over the governance of the country. And I think it's extremely important that the democratic parties keep that cordon sanitaire. Because I know that some of the right-wing parties are tempted to kind of a little bit, just a little bit rely upon the support of the extreme right. But once you start to do that, you're on a slippery slope. And these are authoritarian movements. They are racist. We should be very, very, very careful. So that for me, now it's up to proof for all the democratic parties to show that we are prepared to negotiate, discuss, But this is a red line. It seems strange as an outsider. So maybe I don't know something about the internal domestic passions that exist in Swedish politics. But I look at groups like the Centre Party. You know, they're involved in the Liberal Aude group in the parliament here. And I imagine they're the sort of party that you don't love, but you tolerate and can work with and you see some good points in them and so on. And so it seems a bit strange that they would end up aligned in voting somehow with the Sweden Democrats to get rid of a prime minister when they would seem like they're more part of a natural left-wing government. They did that. They did vote to distribute the prime minister together with the extreme right. But the center party together with the liberal party, which is two out of the four that form a right-wing bloc, So the two parties there have said that they will never cooperate or form a government that is in any way dependent upon the support of the extreme right. And, you know, I really hope that they will stick to that position because I think it's so fundamental for the future governance of Sweden. So I expect my center party colleagues and my liberal party colleagues to stick to that. Very good. And is there anything else on your mind, you know, now that we are, we're not in the twilight of this parliament, but things are starting to wind down in terms of new initiatives and people are thinking more and more of these election sort of moments. Well, yeah, and, and so do I, you know, I, I see that I have a lot of legislation still in my, my, in my committee, in the Civil Liberties yeah. Committee, where all the asylum legislation and everything is just throw at us, these 10,000 armed border guards that the commission suddenly wants, etc. So we have a lot of work to do to kind of stop very bad proposals. But I also start to think more about the European election and what's at stake. And I think some people will try to paint a picture of, uh, and I'm thinking like the Macron 
side of things, that either you're with us or you're against us, mm. and then you're with a racist, nationalist, extreme right. But I would say there is a third option. There is the left. And I think it is, will be very important for us in the left to be able to show what that looks like, like how we, are we going to promote a Europe that is not militarist, that is an open Europe, that values equality, gender equality, LGBTI rights, that puts democracy and rule of law at the heart, but that also demands that we do more to counteract climate change, tax dodging and those you know, issues mm -hmm. that Europe can deal with. So I think, you know, to avoid a very simplistic EU election is, would, would be an important thing. And we are forming alliances now with the Swedish left party, with my sister parties in Finland and Denmark, mm -hmm. Podemos in Spain, La France Insoumise, mm -hmm. and in Bloco Izquierda in Portugal. We have started and will launch a platform called Now the People. And we will continue to pursue on specific issues outlining, you know, you don't only have the choice between status quo, business as usual, or the racist nationalist. There is another alternative, and it's the left. And it actually seems to be working in the polls. We've got a new Politico election hub that we kicked off this month. And in those seat projections, you're the group that looks like it's going up the most in percentage terms compared oh, to results to today. <laughs> yeah, so that's good. But then one, one final tough question yeah. for you then, because there are some people who are a bit more Eurosceptic within your group than, say, you would be. Do you know how you're going to relate to them? Do you feel that you can be a united group after the election? Or will there always be that sort of minority group with in, uh, but you know, I, I don't know, the, the Swedish left party is very Eurocritical. And it's because we would like to see treaty changes. You know, we are not happy with the treaty that puts, you know, banks before the planet and the internal market as the greater objective of all. I think it's fair to say that the treaty is not serving us properly. So in that sense, maybe I'm one of those Eurosceptics <laughs> that you outline. I think Europe needs to dare to think that it has to change. Because otherwise, if it's status quo, then we're feeding those whose agenda is a dead end, the extreme right, etc. But we have to dare to say that this Europe has to change. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Marilyn Bjork. Thank you. That was left-wing Swedish MEP Marlin Bjork. And coming up next, the Brussels Brains Trust. We are kicking off this session of the Brussels Brains Trust with Alva and her cat hair all over her jacket. Listeners, I want to point out to you that we are very coordinated here today. We are all in tones of black and grey and some flecks of white in there, which I think reflects the weather that has now turned in Brussels. But enough of that. Uh, let's get into some serious discussions. Hello, Alva. Hello. Thanks for making me sound like a cat woman. <laughs> Hello, Lena. <laughs> Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Alva. To be fair, I've got a lot of fluff on my uh, Siemens jumper as well. Mm. That didn't come out right. It's very warm. Jumper. <laughs> I'm a mariner's jumper. Oh, uh, Siemens jumper. <laughs> 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 on to Angela Merkel. I guess that's the big news of this week. The Iron Chancellor, the Iron Lady of Germany is leaving part of her job. A lot of people are calling it a partial retirement. Basically, she's giving up the lesser element of her big two roles in Germany. She will no longer be the leader of her Christian Democratic Union, and she will try and hang on for as long as possible as Chancellor. 
but it's a big open question how long she can hold on. It's been a long time that Angela Merkel has been sitting in that hot seat in Germany. Bill Clinton was president when she first took over the leadership of her party. She's been the chancellor for 13 years. I think maybe it's worth a little bit of reflecting on that time and what we remember from it, as well as what we think might happen next. I don't know, maybe you could kick off with some words that jump into your mind about Angela Merkel's reign. Who wants to go first? I think we will always remember her in my part of the world as a humanitarian, as somebody who opened the doors and tried to jump and help the refugees, especially with the Syrian crisis. This is a legacy that she will leave forever. Another word that always get in my mind whenever I think of her is resilience. This lady is resilient and one of a kind of a female leadership that didn't accept to be bullied. She really knew how to ride the wave in the ups and the downs. And I will never forget her first encounter with President Trump. I think it was one of the most memorable moments uh, for a female leader in her position, leading Europe and standing head to head with a unpredictable and will never ever be a predictable president of the so-called free world. Yeah, I think that probably will be her legacy, right? We were trying to think before when we were preparing this, because we do prepare these segments occasionally, um, what has been her big policy legacy? And we thought of a few things like nuclear and obviously the decision that she made to let in Winding down nuclear, let's be clear. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah, the legacy around, well, will it be a positive legacy? We don't know when she basically opened the doors to refugees. But I think in a European context, she really was a steady hand. She was one of the steadiest leaders in the last 13 years for the European Union. And then when Trump was elected, this idea that she was the leader of the new free world was foist upon her. And I think that she will definitely be remembered in the international community for that role that she had really as the captain of the international order following Trump. I would agree with that. Steady is one of the three words I chose. So you've stolen that word. I'll have to come up with a new one, Alva. Uh, I think almost in a way that's what the world expects or hopes from Germany. I mean, Germans won't necessarily want to hear it. And it is a long time since the last world war. But in the minds of a lot of people, Germany is a very volatile country and dangerous bad things happen if Germans get too much power or act in unpredictable ways. So to be a steady leader of a country for so long is not only valuable to your own country, but it's very valuable to outsiders. And I think that that, you know, shouldn't be underestimated. At the same time, the other words I was going to choose, and I was going to say graceful as well. I think she's a very graceful person. I met her once and I was shocked by her ordinariness. And I mean that in a good way. She was pleasant, friendly, queuing up at the buffet at the hotel with everyone else for her breakfast, spoke in English, she had good humor. You know, it was really not what you expect from someone in that position. And that's a really good quality, in my opinion. At the same time, I can't really recall any specific major policy reforms that she planned. She reacted to the Fukushima disaster. She reacted to the migrant crisis. You know, and I think there are some stored up problems in Germany in terms of dealing with its demographics. It has a very successful export-based economy. But you know, it has fairly low wages compared to a lot of other countries. And you can see why people feel left behind in that system, potentially people who never felt fully integrated from the East. You can see that there are things that haven't been solved there. And you can't blame Angela Merkel for not solving them. But still, if you're around for 13 years, you can't 
not accept some of the difficult reminders of your time as well as the positive reminders. But I think also she was very pragmatic is the other word that I would use. And I think that's causing a bit of backlash in her own party now because she did move the party to the center. She did do anything she could to get rid of her rivals. And, you know, even surprisingly, some of the ones she got rid of 15 years ago, like Frederick Mertz, are coming back into play. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to see a lot of reckoning and full circles in the next year. Yeah, no, I think this pragmatism is very interesting. But I also think she was quite bipartisan in a way. Like, I always find it really interesting. She had to be. She always ran coalition government. Yeah, no, but I mean, even at an international level, she had such an interesting relationship, for example, with Obama, who is a classic liberal. And I think you once said it, Ryan, that, you know, she's been painted as a liberal, but she really isn't. But I think it's really interesting that she can forge these kind of relationships with liberals as a conservative. And I, obviously, that, for example, with Macron also, mm. although she's been a little bit more cautious in that relationship, I think. But... I mean, we need more of that. We really need more of that if we're going to defend the rules-based order because that order, that system, was actually built by liberals, by socialists, by conservatives altogether. And I think that we need a little bit more of that old conservatism that, that's willing to, because we don't see it anymore, for example, in the US. and in, Just and to actually conserve some things. Yeah, exactly. Conserve some things, but be willing to make deals that uphold everything that we decided after World War II. And I think that she really did that in a really gracious way you're right she is graceful and moreover when you have a leader and the leader really believe that it is time to step down and not to be the crisis not to become we spoke about it last podcast when they grow bigger than their own political parties and bigger than their own voters and I think with her stepping down and letting the future of Germany and the future of new political parties or a new coalition see I think this is very, very important quality that she has, and we, we shouldn't like blame her for that or underestimate such a step. Now, politics is also very brutal, so maybe we need to turn a little bit to what might happen next for Angela Merkel. She plans to stay on until 2021. Very few political leaders get to choose when they exit, and very few of them get to flag three years in advance when that exit is going to be. Tony Blair basically pulled it off the best of anyone, I can think, in recent memory. And Kennedy did it as well. Ah, yes, also true. But the wheels are in motion, at least in some parts of Angela Merkel's party, and also in other parties who she depends on to govern, to have her go much quicker than that. Do you think we're likely to see her as Chancellor in a year's time? Or would you be inclined to agree that the odds are against her? I think the odds are against her. Nothing is so reassuring in Europe with all the movements and we have an upcoming elections. Nothing is reassuring. I think she might be let go before that time and it will be a loss. It will be a loss for Europe because I don't see any leader can fill her shoes and be as resilient and as futuristic as she is. Yeah, and who, who will come into the vacuum that she leaves behind? I think it's very, we already know that it's a very difficult context now in Germany. I'd say the reason that she said she was going to stay on for three years is to keep the market stable a little bit, knowing that she wouldn't be sticking around if some viable option presented itself. But I, yeah, it's worrying to think about the fight for that position now, given 
all we know about what's been happening in Germany. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think she'll be allowed to stick around for three years. That's a little bit strange. Even Andy Kenny had a very short lead up time to when he retired and he was part of the ruling party. So everybody, well, the fight was really about who was going to take the leadership, but it was a very short amount of time. And I'm not sure Tony Blair had three years either, did he? No. So during the 2005 election campaign, he said he wouldn't run again. And then he managed to hold on for pretty much two years after mm-hmm. that. So that was, you know, quite extended. Yeah, I would say that Merkel has a real interest to leave early if her preferred successor gets the job. But if she thinks it's going to be a more conservative person, in particular a conservative man, she'd be inclined to stay on a little bit longer. But also the fact that she has said she will not seek any other job. And this matters in a Brussels context because mm-hmm. she really explicitly said, I will not do another political job, including an EU presidency in Brussels, for example. She has a free hand now to pursue what she really wants. Now, the risk is she gets pushed out the door if she makes a wrong step there, but she's also not beholden to anyone. So it's an interesting tactical manoeuvre on her part. It would just be so brilliant for the European Union to get her as the head of the commission. It's a bit, it would be a bit of a step down, wouldn't it, for her, I think? Well, she will be doing the real job she has been doing, no? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I think it's a bit of a step down, like, to become the commission president after being the prime minister, the most powerful woman in the world, basically. Well, let's yeah. put it this way. I don't think she's going to turn into a wax statue, which is what <laughs> Silvio Berlusconi absolutely looked like in that photo that we saw on Twitter last week. Folks, if you haven't seen it, get online right now. It's like Europe's version or the European People's Party version of that Saudi orb photo where you've got Antonio Tajani, Manfred Weber, those two stars on the European stage, and Silvio Berlusconi literally looking like some item from Madame Tussauds. So with all their hands locked in the middle of this strange photo. Unbelievable. And a poor, beautiful, cute dog in the middle. Did you see it? The no. white dog. dog. Oh, oh. You haven't, I sent it to you guys. The bottom of the photo was cut off. Wow, it could be like one of those images I felt where sorry you have to for find the dog. Wally or whatever. Really? Yeah. Find the unusual thing. Oh, there we go. <laughs> They're all unusual. See, Angela, look what we have to talk about when you're not here anymore. Mm. Well, Lena, Alva, thank you so much for another wonderful panel. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Remember, we really would love you to go out and rate and review and subscribe to us on whatever platform you found us on. Because if you do that, we become more visible and more people can learn about the podcast. Just like you, once you hear it, you know you love it. But we've got to show people that it exists. And of course, podcasting is a team effort. So thanks, as always, to Andrew Gray, Wei Dong Lin and Anya Boonker.